Turn with me then this morning to our text, which comes from Obadiah, as we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 of Obadiah. And Obadiah is squished between the book of Amos and the book of Jonah. So Obadiah, verses 1 through 9. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Eden and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, today's sermon is the first of a three-part sermon in Obadiah. Now, Obadiah happens to be not only the smallest of the minor prophets, but he is also the smallest book of the entire Old Testament. As Obadiah is comprised of just 21 verses, but what it lacks in size, it makes up for with its rich theology. And we see this in the three titles that I've given to this sermon series. As the title of today's sermon is The Power of God. Next week we're going to be looking at The Justice of God. And then the following week we will conclude with The Mercy of God. Now the reason for this letter is the pronouncement of God's judgment upon Edom. And Edom were the descendants of Esau. And who was Esau? the brother of Jacob, whom he sold his birthright to. And so this tension that started with brothers has now trickled down their line of descendants, their lineage. And now we have cousins warring with cousins. And what was it then that caused the Edomites to find themselves on the receiving end of God's pronouncement of His judgment upon them? Well, it depends on when you believe the book of Obadiah was written. 
And there are different uh, dates that are given for the dating of the book of Obadiah. But the position that I think is most likely is that Obadiah was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And there are a couple of indicators that I think point us in this direction. One is found in Psalm 137, verse 7. As we read, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And then we see in Obadiah verse 10, we read this, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall come over you, and you shall be cut off forever. So here's one indicator for a 587 date. Psalm 137 tells us the Edomites acted against Israel at the time of Jerusalem's destruction. And we see this played out here in Obadiah verse 10. This is exactly what Obadiah is describing. Another reason is found in Obadiah verses 11 to 14. Look with me there. As we read, on that, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster. In the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Now the Edomites, descendants of Esau, committed treason against their very own family members. As Jerusalem is being sacked By the Babylonians, the Israelites fled and they fled toward Edom. And what do you think it is they found when they got to Edom? Do you think they found safety? Nope. Rather, what the Edomites did is they captured the Israelites and they returned them to the Babylonians. And it is this handing over of the survivors here in Obadiah that is spoken of, which we also read in Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the judgment that is going to come upon the Edomites for their participation in the siege of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 5, we read this. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and did what? And gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare for you. Blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. And so we see that in Ezekiel here, he describes the Edomites taking part in the destruction of Jerusalem in part by doing what? By handing over the Israelites to the sword of the Babylonians. So Psalm 137 and Ezekiel 35 
are describing the events of the fall of Jerusalem and these same events that we're hearing correspond to what Obadiah is telling us in verses 10 through 14. And so this, I think, is a a good indicator for why it is likely that Obadiah was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in the year of 587 B.C. So that is the dating of the letter. Now the author of the letter, unfortunately we don't know much about the author of the letter. We know that his name is Obadiah. Other than that, there isn't much more that we know about him. Now the name of Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. And Obadiah, living up to his name, serves Yahweh, we're told, by delivering the message of this vision to the Israelites who are struggling in captivity. And so uh, the book is a book written about the judgment of Eden, and it's written to the Israelites, and the purpose of this letter is to comfort Judah and knowing that God has not forgotten them and that He will repay with vengeance those who committed treason against them. And He will restore the exiles. That is the purpose of this letter, to comfort Judah. Now the structure of this letter can really be broken down into two parts. The first part encompasses verses 1-16, through which deals with Edom's destruction. Verse 1 through 16 is Edom's destruction. Part 2 covers verses 17 through 21, which describes the deliverance of Judah. Now, Puritan Edward Marbury, in his commentary on Obadiah, uh, puts it like this as he describes the two parts. He says, In the first part, God thundereth with tears of his judgments. And in the second part, we hear the whisper and still voice of His mercy. The way Edward Marbury puts it is far more eloquent than the way that I put it. And so this week we will see, and next week, the tears of God's judgment. And then the last week we will be looking at the merciful whispers of our Lord to His people. But for today we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. And so we're going to be looking at the the power of God, as this sermon is entitled, And we'll be looking at it under three uh, headings or three main points. And so point one is God's omnipresent power. God's omnipresent power. Point two is God's infinite power. God's infinite power. And point three is God's all-wise power. God's all-wise power. Now this book starts with us being told that this is a vision of Obadiah. But this vision began with God opening up His eyes to receive this divine revelation. As this word vision or revelation conveys the idea of a divine communication to a prophet. And so this is what we have. God giving a divine communication to His prophet. And this is why Obadiah right after can say, Thus says the Lord. As this is a mark of a true prophet. Obadiah isn't running around looking for a prophecy to to give to people. Rather, this this vision has come to Obadiah and he has received it, but it was initiated and delivered to him by God. And because it wasn't a vision that originated in Obadiah, but one given to him through inspiration, 
the people of God, upon hearing this message, declared to them, would know that the contents of this letter would surely come to pass. It was certain that what is told to them will happen. And so with the opening of this letter, Obadiah is signaling to the people that he speaks with authority and that he speaks with the authority of God. And because it's God's word, every word will come to pass. And one reason that it will surely come to pass is because God is an almighty God. He is full of power. And yet, a lot of times, brothers and sisters, I think that we can limit God by our speech. A lot of times we speak of God in the same manner that we would speak of ourselves. We speak of God having power. But you see, God just doesn't possess power. God is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. You can think of the strongest human being who's ever walked the earth. You can think of the strongest armies. You can think of the strongest nations. And none of them pale in comparison to the power of God. That is because God's power depends on nothing and no one. God's power is intrinsic to who He is. Our power is not. Our power is acquired power. We gain power and we can gain more of it. We lose power and we can lose more of it. World leaders are powerful in many ways, but even their power is contingent power. It's oftentimes contingent upon the help of others. The leader of some nation needs a willing army to fight for him in order to exercise his rule and power. Here in America... The President needs the the Congress and the Senate to work with him in order to implement legislation. And after they leave office, the President no longer has the same power. Their power is something they possess, but for a time. It lasts for four years or for eight years, but then it's gone. But you see, God's power is eternal and it is absolute power. And when I say absolute power, what I mean to do is describe to you the power which speaks of His ability to do all things that He chooses. Even those things that He does not do but could. His ability to do all things, even things He chooses not to do, but He could. That is God's absolute power. But God also has what we call ordinate power. Ordinate power. And ordinate power is the same power as absolute power, but it just describes God's power in another way. And so God's ordinate power is a way to describe the power that He has to do and execute His will. So ordinate power is to actually execute what He has decreed to come to pass. To execute His plan. And He does this, we see, by bringing the heavens and the earth into existence by the power of His Word. We see God's ordinate power in action by sustaining all of creation. We see God's ordinate power at work as He holds in His hand the hearts of men and women. We read in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And yet man in his pride and in his arrogance brings himself high in his mind and he lowers Almighty God. 
But no matter how powerful man may feel, no matter how secure he may feel, he cannot escape Almighty God's power when he so freely chooses to exercise it against us. And so this is point one that we're going to look at this morning. God's omnipresent power. As Judah is told in verse 2 that God's plan is to make small Edom among the nations. God's plan is to bring down their haughty hearts. As we read in verses 3 and 4 of their pride and of their rebellion. And it was because they thought that they were impenetrable. Look at verses 3 and 4 once more. We read, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, a little background is in order, in order for us to understand what Obadiah is saying here in verses 3 and 4. You see, the Edomites thought they couldn't be touched because of where they were situated in the land. They were perched up upon a high plateau in the Seir Mountains. And in order to get to them, there was only one access road, only one way up, as they were covered by mountains. And so they had the high ground. They had the advantage over any enemy who would try to come and penetrate their walls. And so they had the advantage and they felt secure up there up in their lofty mountains. Yet they also felt secure because the mountains were full of caves that they could dwell in and hide in. And so they said to themselves, who will bring us down? Because in fact, you had to go up to get them. But this is what pride does, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It gives us an exaggerated estimation of who we are and what our condition is. And we see this in all facets of life. Right? People thinking that they are untouchable because of the power they have. Let me give you an example. I'm sure we're all familiar with the heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson. Now, he was one of the most feared and hardest hitting heavyweights of all time. And at his peak, he was destroying giants of men. Tyson was big and he was strong, but he was short in stature. And he was destroying men who towered over him. And he brought such fear to them that he had them beat before he even stepped into the ring. If you watch back some of his fights, you would think that many of those men just took dives in order that they didn't have to continue to take the punch. And yet, what did this do? This caused him to be puffed up. It caused him to have a an overestimation of his own power and strength. And what happened? It caused him to stop doing those things that helped to make him world champion. And before you knew it, before the eyes of the world, fighting an opponent who no one knew of, no one thought he stood a chance, he was beaten. And at that time, the mystique of Tyson went away. You see, pride comes before the fall. Pride clouds the hearts and the minds and the judgments of men. Yeah, let me provide you with a a biblical example as well. We can think of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. 
His pride, we are told, is the reason that God snatched the kingdom out from underneath him. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 29, we read this. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built my mighty power, by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwellings shall be with the beasts of the field. Before the words even finished coming out of his mouth, he was undone by God. You see, the king and the Edomites thought that they were the reason that they had all that it is they had. They thought it was their power. They thought it was their might, unwilling to acknowledge and recognize that their power and might only came to them by God. Their power and their might did not originate within them, but rather it originates within the one whose power and essence are one and the same. They thought that they were so filled with power and might, nobody could bring them to their knees. And so they said to themselves, Who will bring us down? And the Lord, our Almighty God, replies, I will. I will bring you down. Because it is I who have placed you where you are. It is I who have placed you Edomites upon that mountain. It is I who placed you King Nebuchadnezzar upon the palace. But you want to wag your finger at the Lord and claim His glory as your own. Well, I, the Lord God, will share my glory with no other. And no matter, even if you're nestled up in the stars of the sky, if you're hiding out in the heavens, I, the Lord God, will bring you down. Whether you are on top of a palace or hiding in the cave, there is nowhere that man can run and hide from the mighty hand of God. And it is the same omnipresent power that Paul speaks of to the Philippians in chapter 2. When he says that God will bring the knee of everyone in heaven and on earth down to bow before Christ and to confess Him as Lord. Yes, our text today is speaking about historical events between the Edomites and between the Israelites, but this is not all that our text has to say. As this is a depiction is also this depiction is also a figure of the church and its enemies throughout all of history. This message is not only a comfort to Judah, but this message is a comfort to every Christian today, although you may be suffering at the hands of your enemies. Although Satan may, may assail you at every turn, the wicked will not get away with it. God says, vengeance is mine. He will bring the ungodly from every corner of the world down to their knees. And they will confess Him as Lord. And He will vindicate His church. And He can do so because His power is present everywhere at the same time. 
And so there is nowhere that the rebellious can go to where God cannot find them, grab them, and bring them to their knees. No power, no might, whether it is of Satan or the angels or men, can resist God's omnipresent power. No one. Now Obadiah proceeds in verse 5 saying this, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. You see how the prophet speaks of these events as if they've already occurred and yet they haven't? Obadiah describes how the those who the Edomites thought were their allies will turn on them and they will strip them of their wealth and their riches. They will plunder their goods. They will steal their food. They will drive them to the borders. They will set a trap against Edom and prevail because Edom has no understanding. You see, everything that they held dear to, God says, will be gone from them. And just as family turned on family, as the Edomites turned over the Israelites to the Babylonians, Edom's allies are going to turn on Edom and stab them in the back. And now Edom is going to reap what they have sown. And on account of what can this be said? On account of what can can this be said that this will actually happen? Well, on account of the infinite power of God. This is point two. God's power is infinite. Which is to say that God has power in infinite measure. And the importance of this statement is great, brothers and sisters. For if God did not have power in infinite measure, it's conceivable then that someone could have more power than God and could thwart God's plan. And so God's plan to destroy the Edomites could be stopped if the Edomites could find someone who had more power than God. But this is what ought to bring us comfort as Christians. That God's plans and His purposes will occur as He has decreed them, for God's power is without limits. God's power is limitless. And man's power is very limited. And so God will never be overpowered by someone or something of greater power. And yet God's infinite power means not only it is that it is without measure, but it also means that it extends to all things. God's infinite power extends to all things. And Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1, when he says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now we see that God says that the allies of Edom, the wicked allies, the wicked nations of Edom, will turn against them and destroy them. Well, how can God say that? Because He is sovereign over all things. He has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. And, brothers and sisters, He has power over both good and evil. God has power both over good and evil. And yet, the Dutch Reformed theologian Hermann Bavink cautions us against the idea that God is the author of evil. When he says this, Though evil is ever so much under God's control, 
it cannot in the same sense and in the same way be the object of His will as the good. So God is not the author of evil, but He is in control of it. Matthew Barrett in his book on the attributes of God entitled None Greater gives us an example to help us to better understand this. And he uses Job and Satan as the example. He says this, When harm comes to Job, it is God who ultimately took away from him. It is God who took away from Job. But God's intentions in the decisions are good. Satan's are not. Satan intends to destroy Job using the Chaldeans and the Sabians to put his family and animals to death. So yes, God ordained the evil, but the evil originates in Satan and stems from the evil motives of the Chaldeans and the Sabians towards Job's family. So do we understand that? We can also look at an example of Joseph and his brothers, right? The evil they did to his brothers and selling them off into slavery. What did we, what did we read in Genesis? What they meant for evil, God meant for good. God is in control of all aspects, both good and evil. And so much in the same way, God has ordained the destruction of Edom by His infinite power. And you see, God's power is so infinite that not only does He ordain the ends, but likewise He ordains the means or the secondary causes to bring about His ends which would be the wickedness of the nations that we read of in verses 5-7. through To bring about His goal to destroy the Edomites who have sinned against Him. And it's this power of God working in human history that is unlike the power of men. Because God's power is an all-wise power. Ours is not. This is point three. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. We read, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden and in understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. You see, the Edomites were puffed up, thinking that they were very wise. They were wise in their own eyes. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And is it not true? We can think of even today, man tries to suppress the truth of God so much that they've come up with the hypothesis that this whole world came into creation from nothing and from no one. That matter came into existence from no matter. This is what passes as wisdom and science in today's world and what lunacy that is. But it's so foolish to, and we talk about blind faith. You have to have blind faith to believe something such as that. And it was the Edomites who trusted in their own wisdom. And they thought they could outsmart any attacker. They thought they could outsmart even God. By their most wise strategy, they could protect and defend their fortress. No one could penetrate their walls, but Obadiah proclaims that every one of the Edomites will be cut off by slaughter. The Edomites will be utterly destroyed. And this is because God's wisdom far outseeds the wisdom of man. 
God's all-wise power is used to confuse the plans of the wicked. And that's because God's knowledge is causal. His knowledge is causal. Which is to say, God thinks and it happens. God speaks the word as in creation and it comes to pass. It is also eternal. And so it is independent of anyone or anything. And so Augustine says this of God. God God does not know all creatures because they exist, but they exist because God knows them. Or we can say it this way. God doesn't know something because it is, but it is because God knows it. And this is true here. God already knows the plans of the Edomites. They cannot surprise God, for He has decreed what will come to pass. There is no ignorance in God. But rather, the Edomites are full of ignorance. As they're looking and trusting in other nations, as they're trusting in their own might and their own wisdom. And this is going to be their ruin. And so it's as if God already has claimed victory, even though the judgment has yet to pass. You see, but brothers and sisters, no no matter how much we point to examples of God's power, the wicked world is going to reject all of those evidences until our Lord opens up their eyes to see the truth. For since Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, and even today the world tends to think that they are more wise than God. The world looks at Christians today and says, what fools, what fools you are to believe in a Savior who was captured and put upon a cross and couldn't get Himself down. And He died. And this is who you want to follow. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18? The cross is folly to those who are perishing. But in verse 25 we read, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the weakness of the cross of Christ was a part of the all-wise, powerful plan of God to bring about salvation for you and for I and for every believer. The cross, a sign to this world of God's impotence, is a sign to the church of His all-wise omnipotence. As only the power of God could accomplish the saving work, And it is because of the power of God, which is omnipresent, infinite and all-wise, that we can be sure and we can take comfort in knowing that God's plan of salvation will come to pass at the consummation of all things. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for it is true and You are faithful. We know that You will bring about all things through Your most sovereign decree. We thank You, Lord, that although we may be going through trials and tribulations on this earth, Father, Your mercy will shine through. For we look to the cross of Christ, the most powerful sign and symbol that there is in this world. Also, the greatest act of love ever committed by man. And so, Father, we are so thankful for this. We pray, Lord, that You would open our our hearts and our minds to receive Your Word this day, that You would impress upon Your Word 
that we might love you more, that we might love our neighbor more, that we might seek to do your will in all of our life. And so, Father, we come before you this day asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.